welcome. This is the Ag Engineering Podcast, where we talk tools, tips, and techniques to improve the sustainability of your farm. I am your host, Andy Chamberlain from the University of Vermont Extension, and this podcast is supported by Northeast SARE, providing grants and education to advance innovation in sustainable agriculture. We're trying to improve the industry by chatting with farmers and getting their input on tools, tips, or techniques that have changed the way they farm for good. Many of these practices affect multiple areas of the farm. Whether it be environmentally, emotionally, physically, or financially, we share the knowledge to promote sustainable agriculture, lifestyle, and business. Thanks for having a listen. Now, let's get started. Today's episode comes to you from Plattsburgh, New York, where we're speaking with Elizabeth Hodgson, a regional vegetable specialist with Cornell Cooperative Extension Eastern New York Commercial Horticulture Program. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Hi, Andy. Thanks for having me. So if you could just describe what you do in one sentence, what would you say? I help link growers with science-based information and also information from other growers. Cool. What does that mean? (laughs) Give an example. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good question. Um, So the purpose of Extension, as you know, is to help link growers with research and science-based information to help them um, grow their crops more profitably and in a a more environmentally sustainable manner. Um, But I also help uh, link growers with each other so that they can learn from each other's experience. Yeah, so I'm a regional vegetable specialist with um, the Eastern New York Commercial Horticulture Program, and our team spans the eastern part of New York from the Canadian border down to the Hudson Valley. And I help vegetable growers with all sorts of issues, anything from pest management and soil health, um, and also food safety is one of my areas of expertise. And I spend a lot of time going out and visiting growers and helping them address various issues that they have on their farms. So are you traveling all the way down to the Hudson Valley from Plattsburgh? I do sometimes, um, but I'm mostly working with growers in the northeastern part of New York in Clinton and Essex counties. Um, but because our team covers the whole region, I do sometimes go down there. Cool. Not during the pandemic, though. <laughs> so today we wanted to talk about ways to avoid pests in vegetable crops. So if you could tell me a little bit about that, how do we avoid these bad bugs that destroy our crops? Sure. So my background, um, I I did my PhD in entomology at the University of Vermont, and there I was focusing on ecological pest management of an invasive species called Swede midge. And so ecological pest management has been an interest of mine for quite a few years. I'm interested in Um, trying to think of creative ways to avoid pest issues and use what we know about their biology and ecology to manage them um, while minimizing insecticide use. And this this year in particular, we've had a very hot and dry growing season, and it's, um, it's been a very, very challenging one in terms of insect pests. And a lot of growers have told me that this is the worst year for bugs that they've seen in quite a while. So there are a few ways that um, that growers can avoid pest issues. And so one of my pieces of advice, and it might sound easier than it actually is in practice, but that an ounce of preve- prevention is worth a pound of cure. And so a lot of the recommendations and practices I'll be talking about actually require 
thinking ahead of when the pest arrives on the farm so that you can prevent them from doing damage to your crops. And so the first technique that I'm going to talk about that many growers already practice is crop rotation. And we can think of crop rotation as being spatial but also temporal where you can move your crop away from where you had an infestation the previous year so that you can disrupt their life cycle. A lot of insects will overwinter in the soil and then emerge where their host plants were located. And so if you can move their food source away from that by an appreciable distance, then you can disrupt their life cycle and avoid damage to the crop. And then another type of crop rotation is temporal, and so that's adjusting planting dates to avoid pests. And so, for example, for a lot of uh, pests that overwinter in the field, the first um, that overwinter generation, that first flight of insects coming up from the soil, can be the most problematic. So, if you can kind of delay planting um, or skip an early planting of a crop you can help avoid damage from that overwinter generation and then the population later in the year will be much lower. And so two insect pests that I can think of that this can work for is Colorado potato beetle and potatoes. So um, some growers have had good luck really um, delaying their potato planting to avoid those overwintered beetles and also for Swede midge, which is the pest that I mentioned earlier, the pest that I studied for my PhD. But of course, uh, we, we live in a very northern climate, um, and a lot of growers can really get a premium price for being the first to market with things such as new potatoes. So there is a trade-off there. Do you find those early potatoes almost doomed, or has that been able to kind of be all right? Um, it really depends on the growing season. Um, some people, you know, they'll, they'll have good luck delaying their planting. It also depends on how early the beetles emerge. So sometimes they'll emerge earlier or later depending on the weather and the season. So it's not necessarily a foolproof method, um, but it does work for some people. Where does the Colorado potato beetle come from? Does it come in on the wind or is it out of the soil? I'm not sure. Yeah, let me just um, fill in the listeners and, and you on that detail. So the, the Colorado potato beetle, they actually overwinter in the brush and in the forest edges along the edge of the field. So it's a surefire bet that where you had infested potatoes you know, this year, you'll have potato beetles next year because at the end of the year, they crawl over into those into that brush and then overwinter there. So once you get them, it's pretty hard to avoid uh, unless you can really rotate them way far away. Yeah, yeah, or unless you have a very, very effective strategy for controlling them during the growing season. Mm -hmm. But potato beetle in particular is a very difficult pest to manage, especially on organic farms. So then the next strategy that I wanted to mention is exclusion, and a lot of growers use this strategy already as well. So many growers will use remay or insect exclusion netting to protect their most vulnerable crops. And so, for example, I was visiting a farm a couple weeks ago, and they had remay over their brassica salad greens. So flea beetles um, are a pest that a lot of um, growers struggle with, and they use remay for. And so the idea behind using this practice is that you're getting ahead of your pest problems by excluding the insects from the crop. And so, of course, exclusion only works if you get that netting on early enough and you're not trapping the insects inside. 
And we actually have a small research trial going on in Essex County at a farm looking at what we call mesotunnels. So kind of think of an in-between between a low tunnel with wire hoops and a caterpillar tunnel. You can sort of, I can sort of walk through it um, if I'm hunched. So it's um, hoops with insect exclusion netting for cucurbit protection. And this is going to be protecting the cucurbits from striped cucumber beetles, squash bugs, and bacterial wilt that the beetles are transmitting. And so in organic um, systems, striped cucumber beetles are incredibly difficult to manage, and there just aren't um, curative sprays that are as effective as those that are available for conventional growers. So that's a project that we're, we're doing this year just to see if the system is worth it. Um, some of the cons of the system are or that insect exclusion netting can be quite expensive and fairly um, difficult just to set up and to, to handle in terms of weed control and harvesting. But it can be very, very effective. Interesting, yeah. My colleague Chris Callahan has been working with the grower to build uh, a large uh, netted system for SWD over blueberries. So um, that seemed to be working quite well for them, and it's kind of interesting. Yeah, that's a good example. Spotted wing Drosophila is very problematic in berry production. And for consumers who are interested in having a spray-free or low-spray crop, um, you know, a farm that's able to do that using insect exclusion netting, um, that could be very valuable for them. And in Vermont, I've, I've seen and heard of um, many growers having good luck with netting high tunnels as well. So I was talking about striped cucumber beetles um, being very problematic, and so I know that some growers will actually, you know, use that netting a little bit differently than how we use it in the field, where they'll actually net the sides of their high tunnel, secure it with wiggle wire, and then also cover the vents. So there's a few different ways that you can use this material to your advantage. Yeah, I've seen a couple growers do that, and it makes the uh, growing environment inside that even that much more awesome. <laughs> Yeah, it definitely makes it warmer, but thankfully cucumbers can, can stand that heat. Yeah, that was one concern that I think some growers had was it really does restrict airflow quite a bit. So that was something to be mindful of, but by not having the damage from pests is, or the, from the bugs is a big win. Yeah, definitely. So then the next strategy that I can uh, recommend, or I guess I'll qualify that with saying that we're it seems promising, but there are quite a few questions that we still need to answer for this strategy for some pests, and that's mass trapping. So that involves using a trap to lure in the bulk of the pests so that they die in the trap and then don't infest your, your crop. And so one example of this that is used um, on organic farms is mass trapping for striped cucumber beetle again. So again, as I mentioned, this pest is just very difficult to manage on organic farms. And so um, there are a few different trap types, and I think we're, we're still trying to figure out what the best trap type and trap density is. And so you place a lure in there that contains pheromones and plant odors, and it lures in the beetles and prevents them, you know, lures them away from the cucumbers into the to the mass traps. And what we found that is that um, in order to make the system work, you really have to put out your traps before 
your cucumbers are highly attractive to the beetles. And so what some growers will do is they'll use a kaolin clay product um, to cover their seedlings, which is the feeding deterrent. And then they'll set out these traps. And so as the, be as the overwintered beetles um, start to emerge, um, that's usually one of the more devastating um, generations because the plants are smaller. Those beetles will be, you know, attracted to those traps, killed, and then um, the plants will hopefully avoid that devastating generation. Can you go into a little bit more detail about the clay? What, how are the growers using that? Yeah, so kaolin clay is a powdered clay product that is used in organic pest management, and it's one of the only effective sprays for striped cucumber beetle in organic production. And so it doesn't actually um, kill the beetles, but it's a feeding deterrent. So the beetles are um, kind of, you know, they don't like to feed on leaves that are covered by the clay and they'll kind of excessively groom themselves to get the clay off. And yeah, so it that makes prevents sense. them from feeding. So it's different than your typical toxic insecticide where they're not consuming it and then dying, but it, it prevents them from feeding. That's neat. It's kind of a, uh, a very mechanical way, but still using uh, a spray application. Yeah, exactly. Now, another way to trap these insects or with trap crops, can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah, so trap crops are a method of drawing in the insects to plants. So they it kind of works in a similar way as mass trapping, except you're using live plants. And this practice involves usually um, surrounding your economic crop with another crop that's more attractive to the pest. And so one good example of this, again with striped cucumber beetle because it's such a tricky pest, is planting blue hubbard squash around your field of say cucumbers or um, what are, you know your other economic um, cucurbit crop. And so in order for this to be effective, um, typically growers will plant the blue hubbard um, earlier so that they're you know starting to flower earlier and are more attractive to the beetles and the beetles will feed and congregate on the blue hubbard squash rather than moving into the crop that they care about and um, some people will you know spray the the trap crop to manage the beetles there um, but one of the downsides to this is that it requires a lot of space and so you know um, those who are listening to the podcast, they probably um, are thinking that blue hubbard squash might be a little difficult to sell. If you're, you know, dedicating a lot of precious space on a small farm to growing blue hubbard squash, it's not one of the more popular squash varieties. So that is a downside to this practice. Is that squash seen as a sacrificial plant or more of a, an indicator to let you know when the bugs are coming in? It can be both. Yeah, so it can let you know when the, the beetles are coming in, but it's also sacrificial where you're trying to, um, you know, lure those insects into congregating on that trap crop, and then you can spray them when they're on, you know, on the blue hubbard Yeah, squash. knock the population down there. Yeah, or, yeah exactly. Or um, just kind of let them feed on this crop that you don't care about. Sure. 
And so you mentioned indicator indicator plants, and those um, are used as well in many um, many greenhouse operations. And so, for example, some growers will plant marigolds earlier than their other crops so that they're flowering and they'll stick these sentinel pots of indicator marigolds um, on their greenhouse benches and then check them periodically for thrips because thrips are very attracted to yellow flowers. And so really there are a number of systems and a number of ways that you can use these trap crops or indicator plants. And so then another, um, another tactic that I wanted to mention is choosing resistant or tolerant crop varieties, which is kind of the opposite of using, you know, highly susceptible preferred trap crop. And so the idea behind um, resistant varieties is that you can avoid most of your pest pressure, whether it's disease or insects, by choosing varieties that are not susceptible. And this is one of my favorite techniques because it's just, it's so easy. Um, you might have to make some sacrifice with, you know, the looks of your crop or the flavor, or if a particular, you know, susceptible variety has um, an appeal with consumers. But this is a decision that you can make, you know, say in January when you're doing your seed order. Choosing uh, varieties that are disease or pest resistant can be, you know, one of the most important decisions you can make early on to prevent pest pressure. And so one example I can think of here is a few weeks ago, I visited a farm that had a plant that was infected with tobacco mosaic virus or TMV. And as the name implies, it is an important disease of tobacco, um, but also is a, a disease problem for tomatoes and other solanaceous crops. And it's a very, very contagious plant disease. Um, so it's often spread to tomatoes from workers who smoke, touch cigarettes or tobacco, and then touch tomato plants. And it can very quickly spread on a farm. And um, the plant that I saw that was, that was infected had, it was not producing any marketable tomato fruit. They were all um, covered in brown spots. And so one way that if you, if you know that you are at risk for this virus, or if you know you have it on your farm, what you can do is choose to grow tobacco mosaic virus resistant tomato varieties and there are actually quite a few of those available that's really interesting so the tobacco from uh, a tobacco product even though it's dried and and smoked still could carry the virus and, and transmit it that way exactly yeah it's a very contagious um, virus that persists and it persists on your hands you know through the tobacco curing process as you just mentioned on you know on your shoes on your clothes in the soil so a very you know a very kind of scary one but if you're thinking ahead um, my recommendation for the grower that i was referring to is um, for them to grow mostly tmv resistant tomatoes and of course the strategy isn't always perfect of course um, pathogens are are evolving and so there are times you know there are situations where pathogens evolve resistance um, to these susceptible varieties, um, or you know the resistance breaks down. But in general, I think it's a great strategy. What are a couple other uh, varieties of resistant crops that you'd recommend, or that are most common that you see? Yeah. So another example that I can think of was. 
again, I was talking to a grower, I think it was last week, and they have a problem with potato scab in their soil. So that's a bacterial disease that causes scabs on the skin of potatoes. And of course, consumers don't want to buy potatoes that are scabby. And it's very difficult to get rid of because there are no curative sprays for this disease. And on small farms, um, growers might not have enough space to really move their potatoes into clean soil. And so there are some potato varieties with scab resistance. And so, for example, um, Superior is one of the main potato varieties that has scab resistance. Um, just from my personal experience, um, my family's garden has, um, has had issues with scab. And I noticed that one year, um, the Kennebecs uh, were very scabby, um, but our russet potatoes were virtually scab-free. And um, yeah, so potato scab, that's another example. There are quite um, a few different tomato varieties with various disease resistance. And so, of course, tomatoes are very susceptible to, you know, multiple different serious diseases. So that's a, a good one that I recommend uh, listeners check out. If others want to follow along with you and see what you're up to and the resources you're putting out, how can they do that? Yeah, um, so they can take a look at the Eastern New York Commercial Horticulture website through Cornell. So if they, you know, a simple Google search can turn that up pretty quickly. Um, let's see, me personally, sometimes I post updates on my professional Instagram page. I'll post pictures and updates on projects that I'm doing. And so uh, my Instagram name is northcountry underscore veggies if people want to find me there. People can also um, send me an email if they're interested in, in chatting. Um, my email address, um, we can post that in the episode description um, if you'd like, Andy. Yeah, we will do. Um, but yeah, if people want to want to connect, um, they shouldn't hesitate to reach out. Awesome. Well, thanks for sharing all this information on bugs and how to manage them. And uh, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Andy. And I also want to make a quick um, advertisement for the Eastern New York Commercial Horticulture Programs um, podcast. We have a podcast as well. Um, so it's called Eastern New York Vegetable News. So if people want to um, kind of follow along with what our team is doing, um, we have some full-length research episodes as well as some bi-weekly updates on what we're seeing in the field. Awesome. Yeah, I've listened to that some and definitely recommend uh, Vermont growers and growers in the Northeast check that out as well because it's uh, applicable information far beyond uh, Eastern New York. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you learned something today or plan to make a change on your farm, let me know. I'd love to receive any feedback you have. Just click the link in the description to submit the form. It will help the future of this podcast to be a resource that is helpful for you. And while you're at it, I hope you go ahead and subscribe, share this with a friend, or leave a comment. And if you want more information, check out the show notes on our website at agengpodcast.com. That's A-G-E-N-G-P-O-D-C-A-S-T dot com. Thanks for listening, and I hope you have a great day. The proceeding has been a production of University of Vermont Extension. 
For more information on Extension, log on to www.uvm.edu extension.